0: next day and said I would like you to preach so he's had a big week and um, uh, we need to be praying for his wife Pat too um, and I don't know if everybody knows the deal but uh, she's not here today and just to pray for her she recovers from a, a surgery um, I uh, just was curious in this group how many of you served in one of the uh, branches of the armed service raise your hand okay good number Thank you very, very much for serving our country and uh, being used of God to keep this country free. I want to speak today about remembering the faithfulness of God. Remembering the faithfulness of God. Um, I would say to you, we're going to go from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. But um, it's important when you study the theology of the Old Testament... That we understand both the logic and the chronology of what happens and the events that have led up to this point. Uh, The passage we're going to talk about today, (laughs) if you make it stand alone, it's going to be a little difficult. Uh, But the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, He made the first family. Uh, that's the fall of man. That's when sin first entered the world, the beginning of sin in the world, rebellion. Uh, the first murder took place in the first family. It's uh, unbelievable. Um, and it's a book of God's judgment in the flood. Many, many other beginnings in the book of Genesis. The book of Exodus is the book of redemption, redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. In fact, um, the nation of Israel was in Egypt. You remember how they got there Uh Not because you were there, but because you read it, I hope. Uh, Joseph um, grew up under a Pharaoh. uh, Actually, Joseph went down there, uh, was sold by his brothers, uh, who mistreated him. And God meant it for good. They meant it for evil, God meant it for good, Joseph said. Good thing he had a good attitude about it, because God then used him to become second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And he understood Pharaoh's dream that there would be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. First, and then seven years of famine. So God used Joseph to preserve His own family, the beginnings of the nation of Israel, and He brought His father and all His brothers down who had mistreated Him. <coughs> and I've, I apologize for this cough. It's better this morning, believe it or not. So uh, try to think about that when I cough. But uh, anyway, um, He there arose another Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph. They were there for over 400 years, and that Pharaoh said, there's so many of them, God's prospering them. He didn't say God did, but they were growing, and they're more powerful than we are. I'm going to make them slaves and make be hard on them. And so God had to deliver them, and he gave ten plagues, for they would release them. And the tenth plague was, all the firstborn in Egypt will die. Well, that meant that when the death angel passed over, all the firstborn of the Israelites would die, but God had a plan of redemption killed the lamb, a lamb that was without spot or blemish. put the blood on the top of the doorpost on each side, kind of a picture of the cross, and when the death angel sees the blood on the doorpost, he will pass over you. So the firstborn was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And actually, God led them out of Egypt, and the Red Sea is a picture of salvation. Egypt's a picture of bondage to sin, It's a picture of the world system that's dominated by Satan. Pharaoh's a good type of Satan. He was the most powerful ruler in the world of his day. Uh, Greater is he that's in you, if you're a Christian, than he that's in the world. But Satan is more powerful than you are in your own strength by far. (coughs) And so, uh, the bottom line is that uh, God delivered them. And the Red Sea is a picture of salvation. Because... He delivered them from Pharaoh and his army. And it's interesting, in Colossians 1.13, it says, God has delivered us from the power of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. There's only two kingdoms, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And if you've been saved, it's because God has translated you or delivered you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Praise the Lord. Through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ of course, was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. The book of Leviticus is a book of worship. Worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. It addresses the Levites' responsibilities, the priests' responsibilities. The priests are instructed in how to assist the people in worship. The people are informed on how to live a holy life. You know, the New Testament says that too. Peter says, be holy as God is holy. So our responsibility is to walk in holiness, which we can't do in our own strength but by the power of his Holy Spirit and the power of his Holy Word, when the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey his Holy Word, which means we have to read it and know what it says, then we are able to lead a holy life. Some of us are a little uncomfortable with that word. If I said to you, are you holy? Well, we're a little uncomfortable with that. You're either a holy Christian or a disobedient Christian. That's an alarming thought, isn't it? Bottom line is this. Our holiness is not of us, but God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Thank you. I forgot to bring my water up here. It doesn't help the cough that much, but it makes my throat feel better. Thank you very much. I, I, uh, I'm just so uh, grateful that God laid on him all of our iniquities. You know, uh, Isaiah 53 is in the past tense. And um, one day, when the children of Israel recognize Christ as their Messiah, they will sing Isaiah 53. And, uh, I, excuse me, it's in the future tense. Uh, let, me, let me get there, because I'm really messing this up. I didn't intend to say this, and every time I include something I didn't intend to say, uh, bad things can happen. But uh, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded. It's in the past tense. They're looking back. Looking back at the Savior that was pierced for them. And he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. Now Isaiah is foretelling the future, right? He's a prophet looking to the future. The rest of the book. But Isaiah is in the past tense. The reason is because one day that will be a hymn that Israel will sing when they recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. When two-thirds have been killed... One-third of a remnant will recognize Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And they will acclaim him. I uh, think the Bible is uh, amazing in that many different authors wrote it with perfect harmony and unity. Yep. Numbers, a book of the, of, the, of the walk, welfare, and wanderings in the wilderness of the nation of Israel. A book of the walk, the welfare... And the warfare, actually is what I meant there, the warfare and the wanderings in the wilderness. What is the wilderness a picture of? The Red Sea is a picture of salvation, deliverance from sin. Egypt is a picture of the world, bondage to sin. What's the Red Sea a picture I mean, what is the uh, wilderness a picture of? The wilderness is a picture of the disobedient Christian. Some, some said it's a picture of the carnal Christian. It, it would be. One who could have go in the promised land and enjoy all the the, the golden corner of Canaan but he lives in self-imposed poverty spiritually because he will not trust God, the one that brought him out to be the one that takes him in. If you trust Jesus Christ for your eternity to save you from hell and to take you to heaven when you die it makes a great deal of sense to me for you to trust him for tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the next year. Make sense? Um, The children of Israel decided not to do that. We'll talk about that in a little little bit. (coughs) We're to walk by faith and not by sight. The children of Israel decided to walk by sight. And they said, those giants are too big for us. We can't defeat them. We're not strong enough. You know what? They were right. They weren't strong enough but they had their eyes on the wrong thing. They had their eyes on themselves instead of their eyes on the Lord who was strong enough. Deuteronomy means the, the word comes from the Greek Septuagint and it means second law. It's actually translated from the Hebrew and they, uh, the Greek Septuagint uh, back in those days didn't get it quite right. It's not really a second law as much as it's it's the. Uh, these are the words it comes from the Hebrew literally means these are the words that's the first four words in the Bible it's the first two Hebrew words in the Hebrew language uh, in fact the King James says these be the words uh, these are the words these be the words same, same thing and uh, the bottom line is it's a record of Moses words of explanation concerning the law he didn't write another law he didn't write a second law he explained the original law and challenge them to remember the past victories and defeats as motivation to obedience when they entered that promised land. These are the words of the law and here's how you need to obey them to go in the promised land. The book's comprised of farewell messages that Moses gave to Israel. Get this. They begin on the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year. When God tells you, you better do something you don't do it, watch out. He said, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're going to wander here for 40 years. And your young ones that you said would be a prey, I'm going to take them in. 20 years old and older, they died in the wilderness. And 40 years later, almost a month less, Moses began to prepare the children of Israel to go in the promised land because he knew he wasn't going in. (coughs) He wasn't going in because he smote the rock the second time they needed water. The first time he smote the rock, water came out. The second time he smote the rock, Not a good idea, because that rock was Christ, the type of Christ. Christ was smitten once and for all, not twice. He was to speak to the rock the second time. The rock was smitten for you, Jesus Christ paid with his life and his blood our salvation. And now we can talk to him. I was asked to pray at a Republican fundraising dinner in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is kind of a Democratic stronghold in Northeast Pennsylvania, I think about the coal mining town up there. Uh, but um, I was asked to pray before the um, meal. I wasn't planning on going to this, but the guy said, "I'll buy your ticket." He was a Christian, and he said, uh, uh, "We need somebody to pray." They a uh, a priest prayed last year was awful he said I, I need somebody who knows how to pray would you come down and pray He said sure so he introduced me as the dean of the graduate school at Baptist Bible College and uh, <coughs> Dr. Hartzler was going to open in prayer so I prayed and uh, after that the MC would look down the line and say uh, now, now this just this joke is, 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 is okay Dr. Hartzler he, he was worried about me I was at a Bible college so I thought that was healthy But um, then, uh, at the end, I didn't know they were going to do this, but they asked me to come up and give the benediction. So I did. I prayed that God's will would be done on earth just like it was done in heaven. And that God already knew who was going to be elected. And da-da-da-da-da, you know. Prayed scripture. After it was over, this has never happened to me before, but it had a line of people, most of them not Christians, In fact, I think all of the ones in the line weren't Christians. Some had Catholic backgrounds and so forth, waiting to meet me and to thank me for my prayer. One guy said, that was was an awesome prayer. He said, Father so-and-so prayed. was terrible. He said, Man, that was that was excellent. He said, "When, uh, When you pray, he said, it's just like you're talking to God and He was right here in the room. I hated to do it to him, but I said, I was, and he is. He said, what? I said, I was just praying to God like he's really in this room, because he really is in this room. God's a spirit. He's omnipresent, sir. He's everywhere. He said, that's what it sounded like. I said, that's why it sound like that, because that's what's going on. See, listen to me. Isn't it amazing that uh, when Moses gave those farewell messages to the nation of Israel... And prepared them to enter that promised land. And he said, I'm not going in. I beseech God to let me go in even later. But he said, no, for your sake, I'm not going in. Why was that for their sake? Because Moses not going in. And when he died, if you read that, <coughs> at the end of Deuteronomy, his, strength, his eyesight was not dim and his strength was not abated. It wasn't that he got old and feeble and just passed away. God said, no, my time for you is done. You can look over into the promised land. You're not going in because you smote the rock the second time. You know, we better be uh, in tune with the Lord in season and out of season all the time. He's the one that we walk with. He's the one that we can communicate with. Well, uh, to look ahead, the book of Joshua is the book of possession uh, the promised land is a picture of the abundant Christian life. It's not a picture of heaven. There were wars there and there were sin there, but but God drove the people out for them. It's a picture of the abundant, victorious Christian life. And then the book of Judges, a book of failure because of sin. When you fail to look at the Lord and focus on Him, you get messed up in sin. When you try to work it out yourself, you get messed up in sin. You know, um, Ruth, Then, and, and I'll Quit giving you the Old Testament survey at this point. But Ruth is the book of the saving grace of God. Here's a Moabitess. That's in the genealogy of Christ. You can read that, Matthew. Uh, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, a type of Christ. Ruth, the type of the bride of Christ, the church, which is going to come from every tribe and nation. Praise the Lord. Well, Deuteronomy 8. Some of you thought we'd never get there, but now we're going to. And... uh, (coughs) That clock is one we're we're, we're working on, right? I'm going to be out on time, so this is good news. Um, I'd like for you to stand, and uh, let's just read the first six verses of Deuteronomy 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread, alone, by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. may be seated. Number one, remember that God was faithful to redeem you. You say, I I didn't see that in those first six verses. Well, we're going to pick some other verses from the rest of the chapter. And if you drop down to verse uh, 14, um, actually verse 11, let's start there. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, that thy heart be lifted up. That's pride. When you lift up your heart, that's pride. And thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who brought them out of the house of bondage? Who brought them out of the land of Egypt? God did. He redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. He took them through the Red Sea, a picture of salvation. And so Moses is challenging them, among other things, to remember that God was faithful to redeem you, He did it by the blood of the lamb. If you go back to read Exodus 12 and 12 and 13, it talks about that. First Peter 2:19 and 20 says, "For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." Here's the point of it. You can never be righteous until you're redeemed, and you can never worship until you're redeemed and you're righteous. I hear a lot of buzz today about what kind of worship team we have at our church, what style of worship music we have at our church, and we want to lead worship. I believe in leading worship. Please don't misunderstand me. But I'm simply saying to you that some people are just enamored with the style that they do it with. I'm here to tell you that anyone that does not have a heart that is surrendered to the lordship of Christ doesn't worship. They might sing the songs. They might sing the hymns. They might sing and do whatever. But only those whose hearts are redeemed and righteous can worship. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Children of Israel were first redeemed from bondage in Egypt, and then they worshiped and sang that song of the redeemed in Exodus fifteen. What a great song. I won't, I, I was tempted to turn there. I, I want to read the whole thing, but I'm not going to. But you should go home and read Exodus fifteen, the song of the redeemed. Uh, you see, first Israel was redeemed from bondage in Egypt, then they received God's holy law at Mount Sinai, then they built the tabernacle to worship. Things have to come in order. I hear people say, well, he's such a good person. There's none good, no, not one, Scripture says. I often say, well, the question is, is he redeemed? Is he saved? See, um, we can never be good until we're redeemed because we need the Savior to rescue us from our own bondage and slavery to sin. All of us were born in sin. All of us were born with a sin nature. That's why you don't have to instruct a two-year-old who's playing with his two-and-a-half-year-old cousin to share. I mean, you do have to instruct him to share. You don't have to instruct him to say, mine, and be selfish, right? He automatically is programmed and geared with that. I know some are worse at it than others. I get it. Some are stronger-willed than others, but they're all programmed with sin. Now, I'm not saying it's... Wrong for a parent to say, now, thank you for doing that. That was a good boy. You're complimenting behavior. But the nature, the sin nature of a child is evident all the way up to right here with me, right? And you, uh, we're all sinners. And so the only way we can be good is to be redeemed. And we need the personal sanctifying work of the Spirit of God through his holy word in our lives to do anything good. For the Lord, we need the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. There's goodness, right? How does goodness come now? Through the power of the Spirit of God in my life as I walk in the Spirit, as I walk according to the Word of God. That's why we need to let the Word of God, God dwell on us richly in all wisdom, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in the heart to the Lord. By the way, that's a parallel passage from... Uh, Colossians to the one in Ephesians where he says uh, that we're to be filled with the Spirit. Same thing. Singing yourself, you know, the whole same words after that. So to be filled with the Spirit is to be lavishly filled with the Word of God because the sword of the Spirit is what the Word of God. Well, number two, remember that God was faithful to chasten you. Moses says to the nation of Israel. Uh, You mean that's part of God's faithfulness too? Yeah, he redeemed them. And when they were disobedient and went astray, he chastened them. Verse 2 of chapter 8, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he's humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna. Which thou knewest not. Neither did your fathers know it. It was a new thing for you. If he hadn't produced the manna, you would have died. Now, the rebellion of Israel is something that we probably ought to turn back and just look at several verses. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, they get to the promised land, and you would think they would be thinking, wow. <coughs> Here comes the report from the spies, 12 spies. We sing that song, 10 were bad and 2 were good. Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that were good. If anybody can name the 10 spies that were bad, I'll give you a 100 dollars. Anybody got them? Nobody here can. Anybody name one of them for 10 bucks? I can't name one either. I named two of my children, Joshua and Caleb. I didn't name any of those other guys. They were losers. And God killed them, by the way. He didn't even let them go through the 40-year wilderness. They died right then, because they brought an evil report. But if you look at numbers, uh, chapter 13, it says, the, but the men went up with him. They just talked about the ten people giving the, the report and, and how Joshua and Caleb gave the great report. All the good fruit and everything was there, brought back the, grape on the grapes on the pole. But the men went up with him and said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. That was their focus. They brought an evil report, verse 32. And it says in verse 33, There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. So we were in their sight. What, you know, I'd rather be a grasshopper in the Lord's army than the greatest soldier and the, or, or airman and the best fighting plane in, in the world. And so they didn't trust the God who brought them out of Egypt, defeated the mightiest army in the world in the Red Sea, drowned them, delivered them. And it says in Exodus uh, chapter 14, you can read that, that they were saved. God saved them right there. Before we're too hard on these guys, have you ever not trusted God for something in your current life? Now wait a minute, he saved you. You're trusting him for eternity. You're trusting him to take you to heaven. See, it's kind of the same deal with us, isn't it? What did the congregation do when they got the evil report? Chapter 14, verse 1 of Numbers. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against them. They bawled all night long. They murmured against Moses and against Aaron and against the whole congregation. And they said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God that we had died in this wilderness? We'd rather be dead than face those giants. You know what they were saying? We'd rather be dead than face the will of God. Because it was God's will to lead them in there. He already told them he was going to take care of the the business in there for them. Then they said... Wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey were it not better for us to return into Egypt. And they said one to another let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Are you kidding me? They're going to get a captain and they're going to rebel against God and return to Egypt. That was their goal. You know, um, just to summarize this the rebellion of Israel is we will not go in. You know what God said? Here's your discipline. You will not go in. We will not go in. Here's your discipline. You will not go in. Yay! We got what we wanted. Isn't it exciting to get what you want? Let me tell you something. The severest way God ever disciplines any of his children is to give them exactly what they wanted and insisted on out of his will. The severest way God ever disciplines any of his children is to give them exactly what they wanted and insisted on out of his will. Let me tell you, folks, they weren't getting back to Egypt. Nobody was going to open the Red Sea for them. There was no way they were going to Egypt. You got two choices. Go in the promised land, a picture of walking with God by faith, a picture of God providing everything you need, a picture of a life of plenty. That's the abundant Christian life, the life flowing with milk and honey. The golden corner of Canaan, right? What well, did they complain about in the wilderness? They complained about the food manna. What was waiting for them in the promised land? The, the most amazing variety of good food and fruit and grain that you could imagine. What did God say? Chapter 14, turn over to verse 22. Why did he discipline them so firmly that the older generation would not go in? He says in Numbers 14:22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Verse 29 Your carcasses will fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Verse 31 But your little ones, which you said would be a prey, them I will bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. After the number of the days in which you searched the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my breach of promise. Now, I have to say to you that uh, their children had to go wandering through the wilderness with them for forty years. I don't know about you, but there have been times when Lynn and I said when we had four little ones We have five now, but we had a caboose. So there's a little 12-year gap between number four and number five. But we had four in seven years. And there were times when we had them one and three and five and seven, you know, kind of thing, that we said, you know, we have to go do this and we've got to get this done. This is not a good time to take four small children. Have you ever thought that? And so uh, so I was teaching at the Bible college at the time. (coughs) And we would get a babysitter or two from the Bible college to come over and watch the kids while we would... Uh, In fact, Gracia Burnham used to go and watch him sometimes when we would uh, go do what we had to get done. But the Israelites didn't have that choice. No Bible college babysitters for them. They were in the wilderness, they were getting manna to eat, and they had their children for 40 years. I wonder um, have you ever been disciplined by God because of somebody else's sin? because you were standing there on the fringe. I always say what God allows, God uses. It is possible that you could go through a very, very hard time because someone in your life, in your work, where you work, or in your family, one of your children, somebody sins and does the wrong thing. That is true. And God will use that for good in your life. He will also discipline, if it's a child of God and the other person, uh... That sinned, But I'm simply say, pointing out that they wouldn't trust God to take them in the promised land. God chastened them and said, your discipline is you're not going to go in the promised land. You would think they would have gotten it at that point, but they didn't. If you read Numbers chapter 14, verse 40, it's an amazing verse. And they rose up, the children of Israel rose up in the morning and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we'll go up into the place which the Lord the promised, for we have sinned. Now, let's, let's get the sequence. We're not going in, Moses. Mark it down. Okay, you're not going in. You're going to die in the wilderness. Oh, no, no, no. We're, we're, we've sinned. We're going to go in. A lot of people want a quick fix job when they mess up. And Moses warned them again. Moses said, wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? Meaning again, but it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you will fall by the sword. Because you are turned away from the Lord, therefore, and the Lord will not be with you. So they listened, right? Not a chance. But they presumed to go up into the hilltop, Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites, which dwelt in that hill, and smote them and discomfited them even into (coughs) Hormah. Folks, um, Israel rebelled a second time right in a row. And God chastened them with the natural consequences of their sin. He often does that with us too. They said, no, we're going to go out and fight them. We've sinned. We're going to make this right. What happened to them? Many were were killed. They were defeated. God often chastens us with the natural consequences of our sin. Sin can cause a person to lose the ability to discern between right and wrong. They they can't keep it straight. Um... Someone said the depravity, in fact, uh, I heard Rabbi Zacharias say this, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact, even as it is the most intellectually resisted. That's true. It's the most empirically verifiable fact, even as it's the most intellectually resisted, the depravity, the sin nature of man. Have you seen your heart as God sees your heart? Psalm 139. Is um, an amazing chapter for many reasons, and I'm not going to read it, the whole thing. But a um, couple, of, couple of verses uh, near the end. It says, uh, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what God wants to do for the children of Israel. Lead them in the way everlasting. Lead them in that promised land. That's what he wants to do for us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Let me tell you something: God does know your heart. The very first four verses in Psalm one thirty-nine says that He uh, He sees you when you sit down and you you rise up. He knows the words of your mouth before you speak them. He knows your thoughts afar off. I tell the kids in schools: the fear of the Lord is the constant awareness that God sees everything I do, hears everything I say, and knows my every thought. He can't help but know it because He's God. Chasing of the Lord is redemptive in purpose. I take great comfort in that. The journey should have taken a maximum of six weeks. It took 40 years. When God led the nation of Israel to the promised land, after they rebelled, he took the 40-year route, not the six weeks route. Why? Because he knew the short route would not be the best route. It would bypass some of the most important lessons in life. That's true for us. Sometimes God takes us the long route, so we learn what he wants to take us. Um, What did he want to teach them? What were the lessons in life he wanted to teach them? Well, we read that, and if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, to humble them. To humble them. Humility of heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Literally, in the Greek language, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they and they alone will see God. That's the emphasis of 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 the passage. One way or the other, God will teach us humility. We have two options to learn it. We either learn it the disciplined way or you can learn it the painful way. The best way to learn humility is to follow the example of Christ. Philippians 2 5. Let this mind, let this way of thinking be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave and was made in the likeness of a man. Being found in the fashion or the outward form of a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, even the worst way to go. You talk about humility. God, who had done nothing wrong, bore the sins of the whole world. You know, um, we can learn from him by following his example, or but we can live in stubborn disobedience until he breaks you or me. He is able to do that. God's gotten rough with me a few times. E.M. Blakelaw said, God alone knows how to humble you without humiliating you and how to exalt you without flattering you. I like that. God alone knows how to humble you without humiliating you and break you and, and exalt you without flattering you. After working with teachers for over 40 years, I've come to the conclusion that the most important character quality or characteristic of a teacher is humility. Yeah. By nature of their work, teachers accumulate knowledge. They exercise leadership and authority in their classrooms. They teach their students uh, a lot of things. They discipline their students, with, hopefully with the spirit of humility. When they do it with humility, I've seen many reflect and follow their Christ-like example. And even the ones that don't follow very closely after they graduate aren't bitter about it. If a teacher teaches and disciplines students with a spirit of pride and arrogance, I've seen a number respond with rebellion and resentment. So it's important that we follow the Lord because everybody here is a teacher to somebody. You teach by your example. Your neighbor, the person you work with, the person you go to school with. And then in verse 2, not only to humble them, the last part of verse 2, it says to prove them. To prove thee to know what was in your heart, whether, you would, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. To prove them spiritually. The word prove literally means to test them, to prove to prove something, prove it if, it's, if they're strong, if they're going to obey, to test them, to know what was in their heart, to know if they would keep his commandments or not. See, it was a test of obedience. He was using... God allows, God uses, and He was using that 40 years for the younger generation (coughs) to prepare them to obey Him when they went in the promised land because the stakes were going to be high with the giants in the land. It was a spiritual test. God was concerned about them spiritually. He wasn't so concerned about them physically. He gave them manna every day, kept them alive. Wasn't a smorgasbord, wasn't, you know, a fancy dinner. But it it was there. It sustained them. But he wanted to work on their spiritual obedience. C.S. Lewis said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. I want you to think about that for a minute. Some of you are going to have to dig down and really think hard, okay? You don't have a soul. You're not a body who has a soul. That's what he's saying. You don't have a soul. You are a soul, an eternal soul. And your soul has a body for a while. And it's going to die. Now I realize in the resurrection you will have a new body. I get it. Christ has a glorified body already. But I think that's a significant statement. We are spiritual people and most of us take care of the temporary body we have or try to more than we take care of the spiritual uh, soul that we have. Well number three, remember that God was faithful to provide for you physically and spiritually. Remember that God was faithful to redeem you, He was faithful to discipline you, and remember that He was faithful to provide you for you physically and spiritually. Verse three, God humbled them with hunger, He fed them with manna. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knowest not. You've never seen it before, your fathers hadn't, nobody'd seen it. I don't think anybody's seen it since, right? He fed them with manna. God wanted them to know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It says out of the mouth of the Lord here. I always say out of the mouth of God because Jesus quoted this when he was tempted by Satan. He said out of the mouth of God. So it it, it goes both ways. Uh, But um, uh, spiritual nourishment is as necessary for spiritual life as physical nourishment is for physical life. You want to have a strong life spiritually? You want your soul to be strong. It's going to last for eternity. You need to feed it from the word of God. Their raiment did not wax old. Neither did their foot swell. Those 40 years. Uh, how would you like to put on clothes and not wear them for 40 years? Somebody said, well, that would be boring. That's a picture of the wilderness. That's a picture of doing it your way. When I talk to teenagers in Christian school chapel, which I love to do, I tell them, Satan's big lie to you, he reverses things. His big lie to you is, if you sell your life out to Jesus Christ as Lord and follow Him and walk with Him, you'll you'll be bored. Be like a boy in Sunday school class the rest of your life. It'll be terrible. No, the opposite's true. If you sell out to Jesus Christ, He will lead you in the promised land. He'll defeat your enemies for you. He'll provide everything that you've needed. And I tell him story after story after story after story how God provided for our family in full-time ministry and Christian education. At time, I'd tell you some little stories, but we don't. We've got to quit. And you see, if you refuse to do God's will, what you're saying is no to the adventure that God has planned for you. I'm going to stick right here in the wilderness and eat my manna and be bored. That's, That's the truth. Well, what's my response to the faithfulness of God? Verse five: Thou shalt also consider thine heart, that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord sh- God, thy God chasteneth thee. That goes along with the second point. God was faithful to chasten us. But number six says, "Therefore, you see, therefore in Scripture, look and see what it's therefore, therefore based on the fact <coughs> that God does chasten you. Thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways." And to fear him. Obedience to his word. Walk in his ways by faith. That's your response to the faithfulness of God. That's number one. Number two. Fear him. Reverence him. That would imply you worship him. And you trust him with your life. Obedience to his word. Walk in his ways by faith. I think of Noah when I think of this. Noah was given very specific instructions. Detailed instructions. How to build the ark. How long to make it. How wide to make it. How tall to make it. And what to make it out of. And so forth. (coughs) and Moses obeyed God and built the ark, you know the two things that, that, by the way, how long did it take him? 120 years, right? Can you imagine his neighbors coming by? Noah, what are you doing? What are you building? Building a boat, an ark, it's a ship. Why? There's no water around here, Noah. This is the desert. Well, it's going to rain. It's going to be a flood. Noah, it's never rained. It's not going to rain now. God said it would, and it's going to. Because Noah trusted God. Noah decided to walk in God's ways by faith, and to trust Him, and to exalt Him, and worship Him. Worship is submission to the one worshipped, and exalting and glorifying the one worshipped. That's what worship is. The four and twenty elders, Revelation chapter four, fall before the throne, what will they say? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive glory, and honor, and power, and blessing, and majesty. The falling before the throne, that's submission to the one worshipped, praising Him. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. That's exalting him. That's always the order of true worship. So Noah built the ark. You know what he didn't have in the ark? You know what God didn't give him? He didn't give him a compass. And he didn't give him a rudder. The big boat not not have a compass and a rudder. His compass and his rudder was God. He knew that God was going to guide him in that boat. Well, trust the God who gave you eternal life to give you the abundant life as you obey him. The human soul is always hungry for God. And I would say to you, how are you doing spiritually today? Do you care for your soul even as you care for your body? You should care for your body. I'm not recommending you don't. But um, obedience to his word, walking by faith in his ways, according to verse 6, and then fear him, reverence him, worship him, and trust him with your life. Remembering the faithfulness of God. He redeemed us. He disciplines us. And he provides for us every step of the way. God bless you. Pastor.